This podcast is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise. Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. This is Anthony Kingsley from Finley Park. We did our first podcast uh, recently where we reviewed the fourth quarter and the full year 2021 and had some good feedback from clients. So we thought we'd come back with our second podcast. This one is a little bit more of an interim one where we're going to have a conversation about a few stocks that we're really excited about. And of course, uh, that's something that we're really focused on at Finley Park is stocks and companies and businesses. So we thought we'd have a little bit more of an in-depth discussion on a couple of those. And I'm here today with Josh Young. I'm going to kick it off with Josh and we're going to talk about Dan. And then I'm going to hand it over to Paul Gannon and Caroline Ada Thompson to have a conversation around Sherwin-Williams. So obviously it's been a tough start to the year with a lot of volatility in stock markets and a lot of downside uh, in US stock markets in the first couple of months of this year. That's being driven by changes in expectations on inflation. And we've seen higher CPI numbers both in the UK and the US. It's been driven by the expectation of higher interest rates and the Fed having to raise rates faster. And it's been compounded by geopolitical tensions, obviously, with the uh, Ukraine-Russia situation adding to that potential volatility. Against that backdrop, we feel pretty good about our portfolio of 45 or so companies. We've had fourth quarter 21 earnings results and companies talking about the prospects for business in 2022. And in general, those companies are performing very well and uh, are feeling optimistic about their prospects. We feel optimistic about those businesses. So Danaher is a company that we've held in the portfolio for a number of years, and it's been a successful investment for us. We think Danaher is a really good fit with our investment philosophy. It has strong recurring revenues, good pricing power, strong margins, uh, good returns. But one of the things that we've seen uh, in a post kind of pandemic environment is an acceleration in the growth rate. And uh, Josh, perhaps you'd like to talk a little bit more about what we've seen from Danaher during this COVID period. So Danaher has been a huge beneficiary of the pandemic. They make a lot of the equipment that's used to manufacture vaccines. They're involved in a lot of therapeutic projects, a lot of research projects related to COVID. I think at the last count, um, they're involved in 500 COVID projects, which really speaks to the sort of central role they play in the, in the healthcare system. And that's obviously been great for them in the medium term. It was great for them last year. They grew revenue 32% and it's good for them this year. But I think what we're most excited about is that it's provided Danaher with a lot of cash, which they can invest to grow at a time when Actually, the, the background demand, even if you take COVID out of the picture, is stronger than it's ever been. Mm, that's then. a good point because you have seen a real pickup in the global healthcare investments um, during the pandemic, um, whether it's a shift in funding towards biologics um, or whether it's more academic research. Um, and we've just seen a generally more positive environment of funding uh, in healthcare. Uh, and of course, in addition to that, we've had a lot of products coming through pipelines into kind of later stage 
um, and 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 into into approval and production. Um, and so the tailwinds, the secular tailwinds, look really positive for Danaher in the life sciences segment. And then, of course, on the diagnostic side, there's been some long-term trends towards more molecular diagnostics at point of care, the whole sort of decentralization of healthcare, a strong focus on cost, more testing in general and more diagnostics. And so these two businesses, life sciences and diagnostics, have, have some powerful kind of secular tailwinds, some of which have accelerated during COVID. That's absolutely right. And to pick up on the point you make about diagnostics, about five years ago, Danaher bought a company called Cephid, which makes uh, basically a PCR test that can be run in half an hour on an instrument about the size of a printer. Um, And that had been growing nicely for them as doctors got used to the idea of having this test, which you could sort of send off for quickly within the hospital, get a rapid turnaround. And then, of course, last year, COVID happened and they came out with a COVID version and they doubled the number of of instruments um, that are out there in hospitals where they're selling tests to out of demand for the COVID version. But at the same time, you've got a lot of customers who are very happy with the experience they've they've had through COVID who will be sort of converted into customers for the rest of the tests on the menu. They've got sort of 30 other tests. And that happened while the sort of general molecular diagnostics, Cephid uh, story was actually at quite an early stage. So whereas you have some companies that are, have benefited a lot from testing in the pandemic and are going to see that go away quite quickly and, and maybe not be replaced very much by demand for other tests. We think you get a bit more of that with Danaher's yeah. test. Interestingly there, you mentioned Cephid as an acquisition. Um, Danaher have been very active in capital allocation over the years, both in terms of acquiring and also in terms of divesting. In fact, when we first got involved uh, with, with our ownership of Danaher in the fund, it was much more of an industrial conglomerate, less in healthcare. But they've pivoted with these acquisitions like Cephid, like the GE healthcare business, uh, more towards healthcare. And actually what that's done is we think it's improved the business because what you now have is a stronger competitive positions, bigger moats, increasing competitive advantages, higher recurring revenues. So when we first uh, got involved with Danaher, I think it had 50 or 60% of recurring revenues. Today, that's more like 75%. And we love businesses that have recurring revenues with high degrees of consumables and services, because it means that when you start the year, you already know that 75% of your revenues is pretty much booked. uh, And uh, that helps the stability of the business. And those are high margin products. One of the things we really focus on with the investment philosophy is the inevitable of the outcome, the durability of that return. And I think we feel very confident that Danaher will continue to dominate this area looking out a number of years. So we feel have a high degree of confidence in the durability of the business, those returns. And so when you triangulate that valuation together with the growth algorithm and the returns and the confidence, we think that makes it a pretty attractive holding here. Hi, I'm Paul Gannon and I'm a portfolio manager here at Finley Park. I'm with my colleague Caroline Ada Thompson and we co-cover Sherwin-Williams together. We're going to have a chat today about why we think Sherwin is a good fit with our investment philosophy. Sherwin's a business we really like. They have about 4,000 specialty paint stores in North America. That's about a third of the market. So it's a lot larger than the next biggest player who has under 1,000 stores and is shrinking their network. Professional painters really appreciate that network, their ability to stop by a Sherwin store on the way to a job site, although Sherwin also offer job site delivery. So they make the business of buying and procuring paint 
as easy as possible for their customer. And one of the things we like about Sherwin is their very customer focused culture. It's all about helping the painter to be more efficient, uh, get the job done quicker. We're obviously in quite an inflationary environment at the moment. Um, how are Sherwin-Williams handling that inflation? Inflation in Sherwin's raw materials is definitely a challenge. As the AC price increases to them, that obviously inflates their costs. And in the near term, that has put pressure on their margins. Over time, we expect them to pass those cost pressures onto their customers. It's typically about 15% of the cost of a paint job. And so if you were to increase the cost of the paint by 10%, that would be less than 2% on the total cost of the job. We think that as Sherwin put through more and more pricing, and they have been doing throughout 2021, and will continue to do so in 2022, the pressure on their margins will ease and in time invert such that they end up having a multi-month and even potentially year period of margin expansion, which should drive strong earnings growth. Paul, maybe you want to talk about the difficulties that Sherwin faced at the start of COVID and how they've overcome that and are working through the current challenges they see. Yeah, well, COVID kicked off a period where people were were spending a lot more time in their homes. Um, it kicked off a period where people started to undertake a lot of DIY projects in the home. Um, obviously, as you live, work, entertain in the home, it suffers wear and tear. Surfaces over time need to be need to be painted and repainted. And it kicked off a very strong period of demand for Sherwin-Williams. Unfortunately, in February of last year, we had a fairly unprecedented winter storm in Texas. That storm froze a lot of the pipes that serve the infrastructure that, that supply raw materials to Sherwin-Williams. And it's kicked off a period of severe uh, raw material shortages in, in the paint industry, which has had an impact on Sherwin-Williams. On top of that, you've obviously seen significant price increases or significant inflation in the oil and gas space. And oil is a major component of the inputs that go into paint. In response to that, Sherwin-Williams have taken a lot of price. They put through a 4% price increase at the beginning of last year, a 7% price increase in the middle of last year, and a 12% price increase at the end of last year. So that was 21 points of price that they announced in 2021, which is fairly unprecedented and I think highlights the extent to which, which Sherwin does have pricing power. I suppose the other challenge they faced was initially stores were closed. And so one thing that we really like is they're pretty much in control of their own destiny because they have this large network of stores that they control. They don't have to distribute through others. They were able to, over the course of a weekend, roll out curbside pickup across the whole network. This enabled their professional painters to still go to work, even during the lockdowns. And what we see them doing over this period when they've experienced the challenges with raw materials, availability and inflation that Paul spoke to is really strengthen their competitive advantages. So they've acquired a raw materials supplier. They've expanded their capacity to make paint such that when the raw materials uh, become more readily available, they will be able to take market share with uh, more gallons of paint that they can provide to their painters. And so we really think that the actions they're taking should allow them to take advantage of pent up demand, which we see because as Paul mentioned, people are really wanting to invest in their homes after a long period of extra wear and tear during the pandemic. And so the 
professional painters that are showing customers are reporting longer than ever backlogs in terms of the work they're being asked to complete. I think it's it's a fascinating point you made about paint only making up 15, 10 to 15% of the total project cost of, of a paint job. You mentioned that, that Sherwin have about 4,000 stores and I think the number two player has about 500. That's obviously an incredibly advantage position Sherwin have almost 10 times the size of the number two player. I think that that scale advantage is realized in, in a number of different ways. You know, Sherwin are able to buy and manufacture paint cheaper than, than anyone else as a result of their scale. They're able to pass on some of those savings to their customers. They're also able to invest more in R&D and in innovation than any of their competitors. So they're able to kind of always have the most innovative, the highest quality paint that's available on the market. And then they're able to invest more in technology and delivery capabilities. And all of these things combined together really add up to an unparalleled value proposition that Sherwin are able to provide to their customers. Yeah, so it's a really good point. If you're a professional painter, the last thing you want to do is store loads of cans of paint in your house, load them into your van every morning, drive to the job site, unload them and, you know, spend money in advance on that paint, you know, before you need it. Sherwin offers credit to its customers so that when they get paid for the job, then they can pay for the paint, allows them to manage their cash flows. They can either stop by the store on the way to their job or they can order from Sherwin stores and Sherwin can deliver straight to the job site. So they don't have to worry about how they're going to get the paint, where they're going to store the paint, how they're going to pay for the paint before they get paid. So it really is an all-round excellent value proposition for the professional painters that rely on Sherwin-Williams. And Paul mentioned earlier the sort of extra wear and tear that houses have seen as everyone spent more time at home during the pandemic. There's also a record low availability of inventory on the market in terms of homes for sale in the US. What that means is that people who are thinking of moving can't find the home that they would like to purchase. And so they have one of two options. One is to stay in their existing home and remodel. That, of course, almost always requires more painting. Uh, Or another option is to buy a home that wasn't exactly what you were looking for and then remodel that home, which also often requires more painting. So we think that the contractor backlogs that these professional painters are reporting are real and will help provide a long runway of demand for Sherwin's paint. You know, hopefully that captures some of the reasons why we're, we're excited about Sherwin-Williams. You know, we think it's it's a very strong fit with our investment philosophy due to pricing power and share gains, um, strong balance sheet, exceptional returns on invested capital. Right now, the stock has come under pressure as a result of rates and concerns in housing. Hopefully, we've given a sense of of why we think those risks are manageable, why we think Sherwin control their own destiny, and why we continue to like it as an investment in the fund.